Amazon's container offerings include ECS, which is the Elastic Container Service, EKS, the Elastic Kubernetes Service, and Fargate, a standalone container instance system. Through these different offerings, Amazon provides a variety of ways that a user can manage Kubernetes clusters and standalone container instances. The choice of which containerization system to choose from depends on the needs of the user and the trade-offs that the user wants to make on control and portability. Amazon's container products have been designed in the context of a shifting competitive landscape. Kubernetes presents a potential long-term threat to Amazon's status as the most popular cloud provider. Properly responding to this threat has required Amazon to extend itself into the world of open source more fervently, contributing to Kubernetes and having more conversations with customers to find out what those customers want around Kubernetes. Customers want the products to have a high-quality user experience, just like AWS, but also have the open characteristics of Kubernetes. Abby Fuller is a principal technologist with Amazon who works on containers and Linux, and she joins the show to describe Amazon's perspective on containers and Kubernetes. We are hiring a software engineer who can work across both mobile and web applications. This role will include work on softwaredaily.com, our iOS app, and our Android application. We're looking for someone who learns very quickly and can produce high-quality code at a fast pace. We're looking to move beyond the world of just being a software podcast into more of a platform of information about software. If you're interested in working with us, send an email to jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. We're looking for somebody who is hungry and wants to learn quickly and wants to build lots of software. If you are that person and you're hungry, it doesn't matter what your experience level is as long as you have built and shipped meaningful applications. Send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Abby Fuller, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. When a software engineer is evaluating the different managed Kubernetes systems that are on the market, there's a spectrum for how much control the developer has versus the specific cloud provider managed part of the Kubernetes experience. So you have the basic Kubernetes experience, and then you have the management layer on top of it. What are the components of that managed experience? Yeah, so I think what you're getting at, right, is that I think Amazon in general talks about the shared responsibility model. And the difference, I think, between all those different management layers are how much of that is on us and how much of that is on you. And I think it ranges from you can run your own Kubernetes on EC2, we won't in None of that is managed by us. It's all it's all done by you to EKS um, on EC2, which we manage the the masters to something that we announced at KubeCon a few weeks ago called managed node groups. And that lets you automate the provisioning and lifecycle of your worker nodes. So your EC2 instances. And then we'll we'll handle things like node updates and terminations to drain them from your application. And then it, it ends, I think, with something so EKS on on Fargate. We announced that at reInvent a few last week. Wow. Feels like feels like many weeks. But we announced that at reInvent last week. And that's basically running your Kubernetes pods on Fargate capacity. So you handle everything only at the at the pod spec level. And I think, you know, how you how you choose between the between that set depends on on how much you want to manage. 
So if you're a Kubernetes operations expert and you want to manage everything down to the master nodes, you can do that. If you're just interested in using Kubernetes APIs and tooling, but you don't want to have to worry about the worker nodes or the masters, you can run your, your Kubernetes pods on Fargate capacity. You just gave a good description of how a software engineer or an architect should evaluate the different managed Kubernetes systems, but there's also the decision that a cloud provider has to make. So AWS, for example, has to make decisions in their design of a managed Kubernetes. Tell me about how AWS has assessed the different trade-offs that could be made, the design decisions in making a managed Kubernetes. Sure. I mean, assuming that I can I can figure out how to unpack that question. I think on, on our side, there are parts of Kubernetes that the community feels really strongly about. And I think that's the open source side, and that's the, the community and pooling side. And I think something that's been kind of non-negotiable as we've designed these pieces is that we never want to lose that. So we don't want to lose kind of the upstream part of Kubernetes. So I think a lot of our discussions have been around how can we make things like upstream Kubernetes work in the exact same way that it does if you manage it yourself, but with us managing a different percentage of the pieces for you. As you mentioned, at reInvent this year, there was the announcement of AWS Fargate interfacing with Amazon EKS. And this was a pretty useful announcement because Fargate has always seemed like a pretty interesting and useful project since it launched because it's the idea of running a single container in a managed fashion, which for many kinds of applications is really desirable because you know, like a hobbyist project doesn't need a full Kubernetes cluster. In fact, it's going to be really wasteful to have a full Kubernetes cluster if all you need is a single node. But of course, if an application becomes successful, you want to be able to scale up that single node to a complex distributed system, and you want to have all the granularity there. And so the ability for, for Fargate to interface with EKS is pretty useful. And what I'm wondering is, what was the engineering work that was required to make that a reality? Because I'm sure that was part of the vision from day one, but there must have been some significant engineering work that was required to make it a reality. Yeah, you know, it, it's definitely it's definitely the kind of project that we we spend a ton of time thinking about and thinking through before we kind of brought it out there. I would challenge something that you said a couple couple minutes ago on Fargate being for a single container. You know, Fargate, I think, is is ultimately a capacity provider for EC2. So by using Fargate, it's the same EC2 instances, but but we're managing them. And that all that means is that you define things at the pod spec for EKS or the task definition for ECS level. It does not limit you to running anything less than a full distributed system. Anything that you can run in kind of upstream Kubernetes or on ECS on EC2 mode works just fine in ECS or EKS on Fargate. Moving into kind of the the architecture choices, not a lot I think that we want to share super publicly on that. I think someone, one of the software engineers that worked really closely on the Fargate and on EKS side, a couple of them did some really interesting, I thought, Twitter threads on kind of how we had thought uh, about some of the process. So one was a was an under the hood talk on AWS Fargate from Archinus Rakanta and owner Felice. And they talked about basically what happens when you call run task. So what happens under the hood on Fargate? Owner also did an interesting thread on how Fargate works. 
and that one of our kind of design tenets from the beginning is that you you needed to be able to use your existing tooling. So any of your kind of higher level abstractions like deployments or replica sets, they work just fine on top of EKS on Fargate. And then from what the team has said, kind of the, the next piece of that is what else do we need to do to Fargate to make it work for things like EKS? And they, they talked through some of this at, at reInvent, but ECS and EKS and Fargate work in similar ways. They get dedicated hardware virtualized environments to run on. So that means a dedicated ENI, which is attached to the customer VPC, dedicated ephemeral storage space, so scratch space. And then Fargate is what handles setting up all the compute and network and storage. The next part of it, I think, is, is the roles part of it. So how do you do things like capabilities and permissions? So EKS and Fargate uses a profile. The profile includes a name, the subnets that you launch that profile in, and a pod execution role, which is similar to the task execution role in ECS. And that includes permissions that you basically need to run the pod. So for example, pull an image from ECR or apply labels. So those are a, are a couple of the of the things that, that, that we thought about when we were building this. The, the thread was a good read. The Fargate under the hood talk uh, is on YouTube already. So if you're looking for a deep dive from some of the, the engineers that worked on this, I'd, I'd recommend giving that a look. All right. Well, we'll have to add those as some related links for this episode, the Twitter threads. Shifting back to the point of view of the engineer, the software engineer, the DevOps person, whoever is managing the container infrastructure for an enterprise or for a startup, and it, let's assume they're managing that container infrastructure on AWS, what are the common operational challenges that they're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, you know, I think that kind of the first operational challenge that people people tend to run into is that a lot of the work that goes in when you're setting up a cluster for the first time or you're just trying to run, you know, a single task or a single pod or you're trying to follow the workshops or the documentation is that, you know, they, they kind of end, right? And that you've you've set it up, you've pushed your image, you've pushed your task definition or pod spec, you have your test application running on the cluster, and then it feels like all of the kind of day two operation stuff is is sometimes missing. And I feel like that's the biggest challenge, right? Is that with distributed systems and containers comes lots of extra moving pieces. And I think that the kind of the first hurdle, right, is that how do I monitor and observe and scale all of these moving pieces in a way that, that actually lets me benefit from, from how these containers are working? So the first big challenge to me always seems like, how do I get the right amount of information about kind of the health and how my application is doing and how can I use that to inform choices like scaling? And I, I think that's kind of the big first one that, that people think about with the kind of the one and a half thing that, that people are, are thinking about being things like identity and access controls. So how can I make sure that following the principle of least privilege that all of these pods or tasks or containers or services have just the access that they need to do their job effectively, but without anything else. Because I think that's been one of the benefits, right, of, of breaking down all these systems is that I don't have to just have this application can do everything, even if it doesn't need that. I have lots of different moving pieces that only have to access kind of the bare minimum. And I think implementing that in production can be really challenging. I read a blog post that you wrote about efficiently managing container infrastructure, and you included some suggestions and ideas for 
how to configure garbage, essentially garbage collection for container infrastructure. This was news to me, somebody who doesn't actually work with container infrastructure. Can you explain how the idea of garbage collection applies to managing containers? Yeah. So that was an, an oldie but a goodie blog post. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> so digging out from the post reInvent fog, if I'm remembering <laughs> that blog post correctly, there was kind By of... By the way, I think, I think that time gets uh, like dilated or, or compressed during conference season, but, but time definitely, uh, the time-space continuum definitely changes during conference season. I feel like just like the rules of like physics and time <laughs> just don't apply in Las Vegas. And I think right. that that is the problem for me is that it feels like every hour there I've lived a thousand years <laughs> and not to bring my eye cream onto this software engineering podcast, but like, I feel like from the second I stepped off the plane to like the second I got it back to Seattle, I'm like, Oh my God, it's like I've been in the desert. It's like outside in the sand for weeks, but it's not just being dramatic, but it's terrible. No, no, that, that makes two of us. It was my first reinvent and it was a baptism by fire. Yeah, and there's some good parts, right? Like I, I love the density of customers there. It's you there's no better way to reach so many folks and hear what they're looking for and what they want us to build. Like there's there's no more efficient way to do it than this. So from from that perspective, it's great. I love seeing their reactions to announcements. I love hearing from customers what they want us to work on next. But Vegas itself is challenging. So returning returning to the blog post and garbage collection, which is one of my my favorite topics, kind of two parts to that, right? So the first part I think of of those posts was how to make more efficient container images themselves. I think a lot of folks when they first get started with containers, or even some of us when they've been using them for quite a while, they treat them like just like a VM or you know just like setting up an EC2 image, right? And they, they they put the whole operating system in there. And it's not really an environment that's for their application. It's, it's, it's more of like a general compute environment. And I think one of the advantages that a lot of us can get out of using containers is that those images can be much more minimal, right? And that means a smaller attack surface. It means they deploy and build and download faster. And a lot of that comes from being mindful about what we include uh, inside the container image itself. For example, if I'm writing a Python application, maybe I want to use a container image that has all the Python dependencies, but doesn't have a lot of the kind of unnecessary tool chain things. So that's part of it. On the garbage collection side, something that's kind of gone hand in hand with containers is a lot of us are deploying much more often. And say I make a container image, right? And it's like 1.2 gigs. For a server, not that big of a deal, right? Because I probably deploy lots of other things. If I have a monolithic application that's, you know, 1.2 gigs, it's not that big of a deal, right? I deploy it, you know, maybe once a week, but maybe more like once a month or once a quarter. It's not that big of a deal. With containers, folks are deploying often many times a day, many times an hour. And if that leaves a little trail of 1.2 gig images behind it, that's not a super efficient use of space. So garbage collection in that context, I think, is about you know, cleaning up after, after ourselves with containers. So making those images smaller, but maybe not keeping around a lot of unused, untagged container images. And I think there's, there's, a, there's a pretty fine line to walk on that one between, I want to keep this kind of recent image because a lot of the layers are the same and I want to use that as a cache. 
caches are a great invention. But also between, I don't really want to run out of disk space. So speaking as someone who's definitely been woken up in the middle of the night for running out of disk space, and then in true distributed systems fashion, then running out of disk space everywhere else also. The garbage collection in that article was about cleaning up after yourself, not keeping around tons of logs that you didn't need uh, on the host itself, not having all of these unused container images hanging around. So how should someone who is using a container system like ECS, how should they configure their garbage collection? Or what are the trade-offs? Like, why wouldn't I just always turn this kind of garbage collection system on? Yeah. So the good news is, is that because because that article was a was an oldie but a goodie, a lot of the orchestrators have improved how they handle garbage collections since then. With things like ECS, I can't remember the exact flag off the top of my head, and I've I've learned my lesson about furiously typing to fact check on podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> you can configure how many images the scheduler will keep. So you can garbage collect a little bit more conservatively or a little bit more aggressively. Kubernetes has a has a similar flag. So basically how how long and how many of these of these old images should I keep? And you know the tr- the trade-off I think is is similar, right? So you, you always want to have I in my opinion, which you know doesn't work for everyone. You always want to have some level of garbage collection. We don't want to be hoarders, but two kind of mitigating factors here. So one, I don't want to garbage collect too much because I might want some of those layers, right? So I don't want to maybe garbage collect all the way up until my second most recent image because I'm going to take a little bit of a performance hit when that image deploys the next time, right? Because it won't have any cache to build from. The second part, I think, is that, you know, beyond kind of, I want to have some of this, a lot of us have moved towards more kind of throwaway infrastructure as we've moved to distributed systems, right? So if I'm setting everything up with the containers, then I'm not doing anything on the host. So for something like Fargate, maybe it doesn't actually matter, right? Because I'm not managing any hosts to run out of disk space on. I'm managing all of those just at the container level, and I'm not worried about the EC2 hosts. So it's it's our thing to do if they run out of disk space. So I think that that is it's something to think about if you're running ECS or EKS, or if you're running Kubernetes on EC2 or or another sort of scheduler. But on something like Fargate, you don't have to really think about it much at all. Great summary. There are so something I, I try to do at these conferences. I went to KubeCon and then I went to reInvent, and you know I don't go to many sessions, but I use the conference as an opportunity to walk around the expo hall, walk around the crowds, talk to people at lunch, just kind of get a feel for the what's in the water. I think that's one thing the conferences are useful for. You know, it's almost like a poll. You know, you're taking a poll or a pulse check across the the world of infrastructure. And one trend that keeps coming up is kind of the question of who should be deploying Kubernetes how many Kubernetes things should they be deploying? Should it be fully managed? Should it be like, should we have it be totally raw Kubernetes so that we have no quote unquote lock in? But I think so there's all, all these questions around like, how should a quote unquote enterprise adopt Kubernetes? But I think the most honestly, for me, the most acute question is, should everybody have a Kubernetes plan? Or are there companies who, if they're on legacy infrastructure, should they just kind of punt the question of replatforming to Kubernetes or containers 
and just stick to VMs because business logic is is too important and they don't have the time or they don't have the resources to do a replatforming effort to containers. Can you give me your perspective on on this kind of pulse check and and tell me if you uh, if what I just said resonates with you? Yeah, so I, I think the part that resonates me resonates to me is that. I think folks should always have a modernization plan, but I don't think that they should have, you know, like a tool specific plan. I think it's about what kind of benefits do I need? What direction do I need to take my architecture in? And less about, I want to use this specific tool. So an example for me might be that I think a lot of folks are looking at things like ECS or EKS on Fargate because it, it removes one of those hurdles, right? It, and it leaves you with just one, right? Which is that I have a legacy application. I'd like to move it to the cloud. I'd like to run this in a more modern way, but it means that they don't have to think about setting up all those EC2 instances or auto-scaling policies or, or anything like that, right? That they can just manage it at the Fargate container or, or pod spec level. So I think for, for me, the important part is about having a modernization strategy. And I think where that pulse comes from is that folks hear about all of these interesting challenges and developments with things like distributed systems or Kubernetes or ECS or service mesh, and they want to get those benefits and they're, they're not quite sure what the right way to do it is. And there's no one right way to run your application. It's about what works for you. If it were me, I guess, and I had all of these tools available to me, so Fargate wasn't a thing when I worked at my last non-Amazon job, I think I would have started with Fargate, right? So I would choose how I wanted to interact with my application, so either with ECS APIs or with EKS Kubernetes APIs, and I would start running my infrastructure on Fargate so that I only had to think about the container piece and not about the EC2 piece. And then as I gained more skills and more confidence and more kind of specific customized needs, I would move to EC2 mode when I needed it. So I would mix and match. So for applications where I needed that extra customization, so say that I want to run you know, a daemon process on a host, maybe I'd move to ECS or maybe I'd move to EKS. But for the applications where I didn't need that kind of fine-grained knobs and dials on the infrastructure, I think I would just start with Fargate. Okay. Continuing that discussion of replatforming or modernization, the decision of whether to replatform onto Kubernetes or whether to modernize or how to modernize, it often falls on the platform engineering team. And at these last few conferences, I don't know if this is some kind of sample bias or just variance or whatever, but I got the sense that there are more and more companies that are creating a platform engineering department or a platform engineering team. It's almost like an outgrowth of the SRE trend or something like that. And it's kind of a new role, I think, like the in the sense that platform engineering in the modern sense seems to mean like a selection of technologies. It's like you've got this huge buffet of cloud providers, and then you have individual companies that you can, you know, buy some particular monitoring solution or logging solution that the company particularly, you know, uh, emphasizes. So it's like platform engineering, some mix of technology selection and architecture and determination for how uh, a replatforming is going to be determined. Do you have a sense for how big a company needs to be to start to spin up a platform engineering team? Ooh, interesting one. So maybe this is a, is a controversial answer, but 
I think we this it's a similar job, right, that we always have a different name for. And sometimes it's SRE, sometimes it's DevOps, sometimes it's, I don't know, uh, a platform team or an ops team or an infrastructure team. I think they're all kind of solving similar challenges. And the, the term is changing as the people change and as kind of the technology that we're working with changes. And I think a lot of it is kind of the same question that folks have have already been always been solving, which is how do I make smart architecture, infrastructure and tool choices? How do I make that scalable to enable my developers to, to move to production as quickly and as safely as possible and keeping our availability as high as possible? I don't think that you have to have a team of a certain size to be thinking about those things, right? I don't think that's a function of team size. I think at a really small startup, that might just be a single person. It might be two people. It might be six people. But I don't think that's a function of team size. And I would actually maybe spin that in a different direction, which is that I think everyone should be thinking about that at any size of company. And maybe when you get to a certain size, you have folks that just think about that. But Amazon has very much has a culture of you build it, you run it. So I would actually say that the, the responsibilities that fall to an ops team or a platform team are really things that we should all be thinking about, right? So how do I how do I deploy quickly and safely and keep my availability up? It's something that everyone in, in every kind of area of software engineering, we should all be thinking about that, right? That if we build the service, we should run it and we should be responsible for keeping it up. And maybe we get some help around the, the tooling and the infrastructure and the platform itself and the tools that I have available from a platform or an ops team. But they're, they're really more like cultural changes that we should all be thinking about from the very beginning, regardless of size. Who should adopt a service mesh today? I don't know. Does anyone have an answer to that? <laughs> you, you. Me. You know, I think service mesh kind of as a concept is something that we're still very much feeling out as an industry. And I think it's it's coming out of folks running into to similar kinds of challenges, right? Which is, how do my services discover and talk to each other? Is there an easier way of monitoring than all these sidecars? So I, th- I think people are, the talking about service mesh is coming from a set of, of similar problems, which is basically monitoring and networking is tough. And I don't want to do all of that for distributed systems. And security policy management. And security policy management, that's a big one. So I think I think it's coming out of folks talking about the same the same kind of challenges and running into some of the same roadblocks. I think it's really really early for us to be talking about things like standardizing service meshes. I don't think we know enough to know what the right standard is. So as for who should be adopting it, I think when you're when you're running into challenges like that, right? Like applying security policies across your infrastructure or how do I monitor from a single place rather from every application individually? Then I think maybe it's time to start looking at them. But I am very comfortable saying that I don't I don't quite know. Uh, I don't know how to get this one right yet. And I think the, the only way to get it right is by listening to the folks running into these challenges that are building distributed applications that are solving challenges like that and working backwards from there. So we have we have AWS at mesh, which is a service mesh, but it is the first time on our side that we've we've run a product in the open like this. So at mesh has a preview channel. So everything hits the preview channel before it hits general availability so that customers and developers can play with things and give feedback even earlier in the product development process because we don't quite know what customers want. 
and I think the the right way the, the way for us to build the right things is by is by working really closely with folks as they're solving these challenges to make sure that we're solving all the right issues. So embedded in what you just said, there was a a hint of skepticism over the the sidecar model. And I know that one alternative to that is the library-based model. And I think the maybe one way to contrast those two is that the, the library requires uh, a developer to embed the service mesh or service proxy library in their uh, application code, and then the proxy. Sorry, the the sidecar model just requires the platform operator, which may be like a centralized platform team to just, you know, click that they want a sidecar container alongside every other service. And uh, and so the trade-off there is that, the you know, it's just, it, it can be the platform operator's duty, but then you have the additional overhead of all these, you know, sidecar containers. Is, is there another approach we could potentially have? Are either of these approaches worthwhile? You know, I think anything that you can manage is, is worthwhile. And I think my, my skepticism is not the the sidecars themselves, right? Because I think that that's where we're solving a problem that's challenging, but in that I don't necessarily want to manage all the sidecars. So if there's a platform team or a service that can do those sidecars for me automatically, like an app mesh or a service mesh, like, great. Uh, if it works, it works. But I, I do try to be mindful of, of giving people more and more kind of bits to manage in the interest of solving a problem that originally came out of having a lot of bits to manage. So the library model is a way of doing that. I think people like X-Ray use the SDK and a lot of monitoring tools have used that approach, which is you instrument and then the agent picks up what you've instruments and sends it somewhere else. They're all valid, but I'm not sure that I have a, a one size fits all right answer here. How does KubeCon differ from AWS reInvent? Well, Vegas, as previously discussed, I think is a is a is a divergence there. The big difference to me, and I, I went to KubeCon Barcelona this year and reInvent, but um, the North American KubeCon was two weeks before reInvent, and I I could not like spiritually make that work. <laughs> the big difference for me is that the reInvent is reInvent is about AWS, and I think that that's actually kind of telling to the ecosystem in general, right? So KubeCon is rightfully so about Kubernetes and it advances with kind of a, a single community and the, the set of tooling and products and companies that have sprung up around it. And reInvent definitely has folks talking about Kubernetes and EKS and ECS and Fargate, but it's, it's also about AWS in general. And I think that folks, when they, when they go to build on AWS, it's because of AWS. And a lot of folks are using Kubernetes tools because of Kubernetes. So I think the kind of the, the range of what you cover at reInvent is, is pretty vast. And that it involves more, I think, than just the container orchestrator. So you have folks from EC2 there, from networking, from database and storage to, you know, different kinds of instance types, to machine learning, to serverless, to identity and security. So I, I think there's... It's an incredibly wide range of, of reInvent. And I, I think the what I get out of that, so I go to KubeCon when I, when I, when I want to learn about advances in, in Kubernetes specifically. So how are people deploying and managing their Kubernetes clusters? I like reInvent because it gives me, I think, a very wide view of kind of the 
the whole shebang, right? So not just the container orchestrator that I'm using, but how do I manage my networking? How do I manage my identity and access policies? What are people thinking about for CVEs and vulnerabilities and how to do secure isolation? So the range is much broader. And I think that's the big difference for me is that one's about a single community and one's about a a giant cloud provider. What reflections do you have from reInvent 2019 specifically? Yeah, so a couple of interesting ones for me. I really enjoyed the focus this year on more under-the-hood talks. So you saw in um, in Werner's keynote on Thursday that Claire Ligori, who was a, a PE principal engineer from the container side, did a really nice deep dive under the hood on, on Fargate and Firecracker. We also talked about Physalia and other kind of parts of the AWS infrastructure. And I thought that was, I really enjoyed that this year because I think what a, a lot of folks want to learn is is how and why we build the things that we do. And I think that was also reflected in the launch of the, the Amazon Builders Library. So that is a collection of articles from principal engineers and senior principal engineers about how we think about things like load shedding and isolation and shuffle sharding and queues and exponential back off. So I, I do really like what I think is the beginning of a of of more push from us on talking about how and why we build the things that we do the way that we do and in sharing some of that kind of hard won internal engineering knowledge. So those were a couple of my big takeaways. The one that did not surprise me was the interest on EKS and Fargate. I think that's something that customers have been really interested in. It was an interesting reinvent from the container side because uh, in November of last year, right at, right actually during KubeCon last year, we open sourced all of our roadmaps. So for ECS, EKS, Fargate, ECR, AppMesh, we run all of our product roadmaps on GitHub. So I definitely felt like I had a, I was pretty clued into what our customers were looking for uh, before we got to reInvent. And it's nice closing that loop even more so that the, the feedback during reInvent feels really targeted. Like, I see you're working on this, but what I'd like you to do is tweak this a little bit and bring us this other thing. And I, I found that really interesting, and I think it makes it more productive for all of us. Yeah, I, I would say one thing this year has really been the increased granularity of what open source means and what the different options are for ways that companies can be successful in open source or perhaps debates, you know, whether it's debates around licensing or what is the definition of open source? How religious do you want to get about it? It's like whatever your opinion, I think that the exploration of all these different ideas is useful long term to the community as a whole. Yeah, you know, I I think a a lot of a lot of what stands out to me for, for open source in general, it's a community that you can't always get in other ways, right? That sense of we're building this thing as a group that works for all of us. We're solving similar problems and challenges and we're, we're building something that, that solves that or I can learn for other people or act from other people or I hadn't thought about running it right that way. That's a huge benefit of open source for me. Um, is being able to learn and listen to that that community. And I, I think that's it's a lot of why we open source the roadmaps is we wanted people to feel like they had transparency and visibility in, in a community around something that, that hasn't always had that. Abby Fuller, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been fun talking to you. Thanks for having me. 